it feels like the last two years have been about the things we long for and the things we wish would just disappear. On the next Selected Shorts, we've got stories of love and haunting that all of us can relate to. Join me, Meg Wallitzer, performers including Cynthia Nixon and the host of WNYC's All of It, Allison Stewart, coming up next. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Sure, we all love to hear ourselves talk, which is why I oh-so-cleverly got myself a radio show and podcast. But after a while, it gets boring listening to yourself unspool the same old stories. Like the one about how you were once in an elevator with Dr. Ruth and asked her a very personal question just as the doors opened. Or how, weirdly, the only two famous people whose last names are Kilmer are men with female first names. The poet Joyce Kilmer and the actor Val Kilmer. Just saying. Well, we at Selected Shorts like to get out of our heads sometimes and partner with other like-minded people who celebrate great writing. We recently invited the host of the radio show All of It, Alison Stewart, to help us curate an evening of stories. If you don't know All of It, it's a popular culture-driven show made by New York's public radio station WNYC every weekday. For our night with Stewart at our home theater, Symphony Space, We put our heads together and picked an exciting cross-section of established authors and younger, rising ones. In the next hour, we'll hear those stories and excerpts of a conversation I had with Stuart about her insights into these authors. Like all of us at Selected Shorts, Stuart reads a lot. She's drawn to a diverse roster of writers, does countless author interviews, and is really a fanatical booster of literature. As I like to put it, she wears the sandwich board for fiction. There's something about fiction and going into another world. I really admire fiction writers who world build. And as just a fan of fiction, I love being taken somewhere. How did you decide which stories to pick? What made these stand out for you? You know, it was more the authors than even the stories, if I can be completely frank. Yeah, please. That the authors of these short stories, I think, each have such a distinct voice They are each, this is going to sound so cheesy, they're each people I'd like to have a glass of wine with. And Note to self, be (laughs) someone that Alison Stewart wants to have a glass of wine with. And note to all authors out there. That was a bit of my conversation with Alison Stewart, the host of WNYC's All of It. The first writer we'll hear from is Hilary Leichter. Leichter's funny first novel, Temporary, was long-listed for the Penn Hemingway Award for a debut novel. This piece was read by an actor known for stage work, including the ensemble play The Wolves and series including Royal Pains and Chambers. Here's Sarah Mezzanotti with Hilary Leichter's Doggy Dog World. Doggy Dog World. I know this couple in a casual way, a neighborly way. They went to the adoption place to adopt a cute friend, something soft and sweet, something to love. We want something to love, they said, and I said, besides each other? They said, in addition to. We want something waiting for us by the door, a fan, a witness, this is our wish. By my front door, I have an antique mirror 
so I can be my own fan, my own witness. The first puppy didn't work out. The first puppy was sick and needed people with experience. This couple had a lot of experience, but not the right kind. They cried about the first puppy. I made them an interesting blend of teas and stroked their hair until they felt better. <laughs> the second puppy was as tiny as you can imagine. Whatever you're imagining, that is correct. Perpetually bouncing like it could blow away any second, just float up in the air like a cute flying cartoon sort of creature. She was a dear little friend and they loved her very much. They let her sleep in their bed and eat out of their bowls and make messes as long as the messes were on the tile and not the carpet. One thing, this couple was not super perceptive. They were not the kind of people who noticed other people. There was the time I cut my hair and they did not see that the hairs were cut. Or the time I was in a car accident and walked on crutches for weeks. After a month, the couple said, hey, what's with the crutches? There was the time I was in love with this couple, both as a couple and as individuals, loved them in a visible way, an embarrassing way for years. Then the feelings expired and I felt relaxed, easy. It is sometimes good to go unnoticed. My point is, when the puppy turned into a human baby, it took them a while to catch on. <laughs> First, the sounds coming from her puppy mouth were baby sounds. Then the paws on her puppy legs were baby paws, which I guess are just called feet. Maybe it was hours before the couple noticed. Maybe it was a whole afternoon. She had maybe already been a baby for a few days before the couple said, oh my God. <laughs> Everyone around town was talking. The first thing I personally do in situations like these is make myself mindful of precedent. Consider the frog who turned into the prince and the beast who turned into the prince and consider all those princes sprung from the bodies of beasts. Now consider the puppy who turns into a child and what sort of suburban spell could have put her in such a difficult spot? I volunteered as a babysitter and helped care for her, this very special baby. She was not as bouncy as her former incarnation. She was not a creature who could fly away. In fact, she wouldn't. When describing her, the word that came to mind was responsible. I looked into her eyes and found a steadiness I could relate to. The couple converted their office into a nursery with an air of, okay, this is what we're doing now. They replaced the puppy toys with baby toys, the puppy bed with a baby crib. They replaced the dog park with the playground and the poop scoop with a closet full of diapers. They transitioned so naturally from puppy to baby that there was no trace of the puppy I once knew, not at all. The puppy things were in garbage bags in the basement tucked away in a far corner. This is the part of the story where the couple started calling themselves the family. I should start calling them that too, but I won't because of what happened to the couple next. It was at the restaurant across town, the one that serves pieces of toast topped with fancy foods. The couple was on a date and I was watching their child. 
The woman from the restaurant who called on the phone said it happened during the third course of the meal, the dessert toasts. <laughs> the couple started bickering, but their bickers turned to barks. Their faces went furry and small. They tried to pick up their slabs of bread, but they had dog paws instead of human paws, which I guess are just called hands. The couple was a couple of hounds, noses sniffing plates of expensive carbohydrates. I strapped the baby to my chest and fetched them from their date. I brought some of the old puppy leashes and leashed them up, walked them home. I brought the rest of the puppy things up from the basement and over to my house. I stroked their fur and made them an interesting blend of dried foods to eat since they had missed their dinner. I set the two doggy beds near the front door under my antique mirror. I look at myself when I leave for work, adjust my collar, adjust my skirt, adjust the stroller and adjust the baby tucked in the stroller. I look at my dogs. I look at my family all together. I adjust my face, make sure it looks normal, for I too have sprung from unexpected things. That was Sarah Mezzanotti's performance of Doggy Dog World by Hilary Leichter. The story, and I think Leichter's writing in general, gives the uncanny and ordinary everyday quality. It's hard to say exactly why you like a work of art, how you know something is good. And I was thinking maybe good fiction is like that famous line that Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart once said about pornography. <laughs> I know it when I see it. <laughs> is that true for you in the fiction you love, Allison? I mean, do you know, for instance, what draws you to Hillary Leichter's writing? When I first read Hillary's book, Temporary, I thought that this is writing that's going to ask me to throw away the rest of the world and just enter this world that she's in. And I liked that invitation quite a bit. I find her writing inviting. Right. And her story invites you into this, this life. That is something that really, really will make me stick with a book or with an author. I listened to a conversation that you had with her on all of it, and she talked about not giving the main character in a really funny novel, temporary, as you mentioned, a name, because she wanted to say something about the way today's workers need to be malleable. I think she said something like that. And I noticed that the couple in Doggy Dog World are nameless, too. Are there some other similarities that you've seen between the story, which we just heard, and temporary? Hmm. I think Hillary is funny. And I think her writing is sly. And that sly bit of humor, which is also trying to get at something else, like not naming her character, I'm charmed by that. Next up, a story from Carmen Maria Machado. She's the author of the acclaimed short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, and the kaleidoscopic memoir, In the Dream House. Her voice is sensual, poetic, and, as you'll hear, occasionally gothic. We were so happy when Machado agreed to write a story for Selected Shorts' first anthology, Small Odysseys. 
This piece was read by a performer known for stealing scenes in the series Younger, and she recently starred in the indie film Milk Water. This is Molly Bernard reading Carmen Maria Machado's horror story. It started so small. A mysteriously clogged drain, a crack in the bedroom window. We'd just moved into the place, but the drain had been working, and the glass had been intact, and then one morning they weren't. My wife tapped her fingernail lightly on the crack in the pane, and it sounded like something was knocking, asking to be let in. Then the spices went missing. The sea salt, the marjoram, the rosemary, even our custom poultry blend. Finally, the saffron, $40 worth, and I asked my wife if she'd been reorganizing the kitchen. She said she hadn't. A few days later, I found the soft red threads sprinkled in each cup of my bra. I'd have gone to her and produced it as evidence, though evidence of what I was not certain. But she'd been out of town the night I'd shrugged the bra onto the floor before bed and was still gone when I picked it up the next day. I tried to gather the saffron, but it dissolved to dust beneath my fingers, coloring the tips a burnt orange that did not wash off for days. We blamed the neighbors. We blamed the cat. We blamed each other, especially when I was in the bathroom and she was in the bedroom and I heard her say, Oh, love, did did you hear that sound in the basement? Can you investigate? And then she heard me say, Darling, did you hear that sound in the attic? Would you go see what that is? Luckily, we crossed paths when we did in the hallway in between. Otherwise, who knows what would have been waiting for us in those cramped orifices of the house. But that only occurred to me later. At the time... We accused and accused, and then we agreed not to talk about it anymore. The strangeness fed our discontent. We'd already been aloof, tender, and now we were fluttering around in our own rafters, sensitive as infants. We'd been discussing counseling even before the clogged drain and the crack in the window, but who can take the time to see a counselor when your wife won't tell you why she's crying and an invisible presence is tapping icy splinters of Morse code onto the palm of your left hand as it did to mine the evening that the power went out. After that, something moved around at night. It sounded like the cat, until the cat disappeared. Then the padding continued, looping our bed like a satellite, soft pawed, but no longer comforting. We lay there in the dark, asking each other questions. Do you remember when we met? Do you remember when we spilled that bottle of champagne all over the hotel bed in Reno? Do do you remember that old woman we saw at the grocery store, the one carrying the baby doll? Hey, do you remember when your cousin fell down the stairs at our 15th wedding anniversary? Do you remember that time I was trying to gently nibble your finger and I bit down so hard by accident? Whatever walked around us gurgled like a pot at low boil whenever we fell silent, so we talked until we were too tired to care. We went to sleep in pajamas, and we woke up to find them neatly stacked at the foot of the bed. One morning, my wife had a blue ribbon tied around her ankle, to which was knotted a tiny silver bell. My hairbrush vanished and showed up in the toilet bowl. My wife's daily vitamins were replaced with eight-penny nails. On Tuesdays, the full-length mirror only showed us our reflections as we were as girls, her gawky, me fat, both awkward and years away from the revelation that led us to one another to this house. I broke the mirror, not by accident. We did research at the library, at City Hall, at the local historical society, 
It turned out there had been a graveyard for criminals on the property where our home now stood. Also, a woman had been strangled by her lover in our bedroom just after the house was built. Also, a man had hanged himself in the attic during the Great Depression. Oh, also, a teenage girl had been kidnapped and held in the basement for a year in the 70s before the kidnapper, who had never bothered offering a ransom, sent pieces of her body to her family in sets of Russian nesting dolls, and then burned what remained of her on the front lawn. We tracked down the tenants who'd lived there immediately before us. Their eight-year-old son claimed the seam between the world of the living and the dead ran through the foyer. We called a priest who prayed in every room and tossed holy water at the wallpaper but eyed us suspiciously from each doorway until he finally asked us if we were sisters. We called a psychic. Yep, we called a psychic who moved around the house like she was bored until she opened the lid to the dryer, which caused her to snap into the air like she was hanging from an invisible crucifix and recite something in a language that we didn't recognize but which sounded unfathomably ancient. We set a Ouija board on the kitchen table, but before we could ask anything, the planchette shot through the air and buried itself in the drywall next to our heads. Last, we called a woman we heard about through word of mouth who only went by the name Miss. Others swore up and down that she specialized in succeeding where others had failed, but she failed too. And when she left, she recommended that we burn all of our possessions and move out. Oh, stories like this don't have happy endings, she said, picking glass fragments out of her hair and waving smoking sage around her body as she departed. My wife and I had a fight about that too. She wanted to leave, I didn't. I can't handle this, she said. I just, I want to live my life. She blew her nose into a coffee filter because every tissue in the house had turned to ash. <laughs> but our life is here now, I said. Also, we can't afford to break the lease. This was the biggest indignity. The landlord had rented us a haunted house for above market rent, and we didn't have the money to move. We left him a few voicemails about that matter, but aside from sending a handyman who dredged up clumps of blonde hair on a sparrow bone branded with an unreadable symbol from the depths of the drain, he didn't seem particularly concerned with our plight. That final afternoon, I opened the bedroom door, and instead of seeing our bedroom, where my wife had been resting with the curtains drawn, I was looking into the boudoir of a young woman from a long-ago century. She was sitting, nude, before a mirror, pinning up her hair, and didn't seem to notice me. In the bed, beneath a gauzy canopy, a body was moving like it had just emerged from a long and languorous dream. A foot poked out from beneath the blanket, and the soul was gray with dirt. For the first time in months, it was not the interior that felt full of threat. How long had it been since windows had kept the many dangers of the world away rather than held them in? But this room was safe. It was all swaddling and perfume and late summer, early morning quiet. The young woman smoothed her hands over her hair tilted her chin upward and tugged on her lip before letting it moistly snap back over her teeth. Then she crawled into the bed where her lover, another young woman, with ruddy skin and a smile that carved trenches into her cheeks, sat up and stroked her face. They pulled close and I heard them laugh and their kiss was wet and tangible like an oyster passed between them. 
I felt a tingle of tears. I slammed the door shut. When I opened it again, my wife was standing there looking just woke and mournful. After that, we were alone, together. That was Molly Bernard performing Horror Story by Carmen Maria Machado. That title is deceptive in a fun way. There are phantom noises and trick mirrors. Allison, what do you think Machado is up to in this story? Are these characters really being haunted, or are they just going through the awful stages of breaking up? Oh, my goodness. This was transformative to hear Molly Bernard's performance of it, because when I read it, I was much more horrified. And when I heard it, and I heard her interpretation and performance, I was, amused isn't exactly the right word, but I had a little more of my, I, people can't see it, like my eyes going left and right. Like, is this happening? Is this happening? Huh. Well, I'm experiencing this entirely differently than when I read it. So when I read it, I took it purely. I took it literally. And I took it as, as oh, this is, God, this is spooky and scary and ew. And then hearing Molly's interpretation, I just thought about it in a whole new way. And I thought, what a wonderful story that it can be two things. Excellently said. At the live show, you described Machado's story, horror story, as so good it could be banned somewhere. Well, these days, of course, the banning of books is its own horror story. Can you elaborate? When we were doing the live show, it was really during a week when the banning of books was so hot. And it was a really hot news story. And it did make me think, like, would this story be banned somewhere? That was one thing I did think about. We're going to just say it out to the audience and everybody's going to love it and then the performance is going to be great. But there are places where if we tried to put this in a curriculum, there would be somebody showing up at a meeting saying, that's inappropriate. When we return, a nun called Godzilla. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and I've got great news. After more than 35 years of literature performed live, we've gone from the stage to the page with our new anthology of short stories, Small Odysseys. We commission new works from 35 favorite writers, including Lauren Groff, Dave Eggers, and Carmen Maria Machado. And we got back stories about unicorns, dandelions, iPhones, and the perfect birthday gift to give in the advent of the apocalypse. If you love great new fiction, pick up Small Odysseys, available at your favorite indie bookshop. If you missed our tales of haunted houses or dogs turning into babies, we'll have to catch you up. Head to selectedshorts.org, click the big subscribe button, and you'll find links for every podcast platform you can think of. 
And while you're listening, please share a book recommendation with us in your review. We're always looking for more to read. This week's podcast features a bonus conversation between me and Allison Stewart about some of our favorite topics, reading, writing, and not arithmetic, and actually finishing the books we start. Now let's hear our final story, something by Louise Erdrich. She's the Pulitzer and National Book Award winning author of books including The Night Watchman, The Roundhouse, and her most recent novel, The Sentence. Erdrich always creates astonishingly vivid characters, and this coming-of-age story has two of them. It was read by someone who can really bring such characters to life, the actor Cynthia Nixon. Nixon is a Tony and Emmy winner known for Sex in the City and its recent revival and Just Like That, as well as the period drama The Gilded Age. Here she is performing Louise Erdrich's Sister Godzilla. Sister Godzilla. The door banged shut, and then the children were alone with their sixth grade teacher. It was the first day of school in the fall of 1963. The habits of Franciscan nuns still shrouded all but their faces, so each of the new nuns' features were emphasized, read 40 times over in astonishment. Outlined in a stiff white frame of starched linen, sister's eyes, nose, and mouth leaped out. A mask from a dream. A great raw-boned jackal's muzzle. Oh, Christ, Toddy Kreider said, just loud enough for Dot to hear. Dot Adair, a troublemaker, knew Toddy was in love with her and usually ignored him but the nun's extreme ugliness was irresistible. Godzilla, she whispered. The teacher's name was Sister Marianita Groff. She was young, in her 20s or 30s, and so swift of movement for all her hulking size that walking from the back of the room to the front, she surprised her students, made them picture an athlete's legs and muscles concealed in the flow of black wool. When she swept the air in a gesture meant to include them all in her opening remarks, her hands fixed their gazes. They were the opposite of her face. Her hands were beautiful, as white as milk glass, the fingers straight and tapered. They were the hands in the hallway print of Mary underneath the cross. They were the hands of the apostles cast in plastic and lit at night on the tops of television sets. Praying hands, ball players' hands. She surprised them further by walking onto the graveled yard at recess, her neck piece cutting hard into the flesh beneath her heavy jaw. When, with a matter of fact grace, she pulled from the sleeve of her gown a mitt of dark mustard colored leather and raised it, a thrown softball dropped in. Her skill was obvious. Good players rarely stretch or change their expressions. They simply tip their hands toward the ball like magnets, and there it is. As a pitcher, Marianita was a swirl of wool, as graceful as the windblown cape of Zorro, an emotional figure that stirred Dot so thoroughly that as she pounded home plate, a rubber dish mat, and beat the air twice in practice swings, 
choked up on the handle, tried to concentrate, Dot knew she would have no choice but to slam a home run. She did not. In fact, she whiffed in three strikes, never ticking the ball or fouling. Purely disgusted with herself, she sat on the edge of the bike rack and watched as Sister gave a few balls away and pitched easy hits to the rest of the team. It was as if the two of them had sensed from the beginning what was to come. Or then again, perhaps Mary Anita's information came from Dot's former teachers living in the red brick convent across the road. Hard to handle, a smart off, watch out when you turn your back. They were right. After recess, her pride burned. Dot sat at her desk and drew a dinosaur draped in a nun's robe, its mouth open in a roar. The teeth, long and jagged, grayish-white, held her attention. She worked so hard on the picture that she barely noticed as the room hushed around her. She felt the presence, though, the shadow of attention that dropped over her as Marianita stood watching. As a mark of her arrogance, Dot kept drawing. She shaded in the last tooth and leaned back to frown at her work. The page was plucked into the air before she could pretend to cover it. No one made a sound. Dot's heart beat with excitement. You will remain after school, the nun pronounced. The last half hour passed. The others filed out the door. And then the desk in front of Dot filled suddenly. There was the paper, the carefully rendered dinosaur caught in mid-roar. Dot stared at it furiously, her mind a blur of anticipation. She was not afraid. Look at me, Marianita said. Dot found that she didn't want to, that she couldn't. Then her throat filled. Her face was on fire. Her lids hung across her eyeballs like lead shades. She traced the initials carved into her desktop. Look at me, Marianita said to her again. And Dot's gaze was drawn upward, upward on a string until she met the eyes of her teacher, deep brown, electrically sad. Their very stillness shook Dot. I'm sorry, she said. When those two unprecedented words dropped from her lips, Dot knew beyond reason and past bearing that something terrible had occurred. She felt dizzy. The blood rushed to her head so fast that her ears ached, yet the tips of her fingers fell asleep. Her eyelids prickled and her nose wept, but at the same time her mouth went dry. Her body was a thing of extremes contradicting itself. When I was young, Sister Marianita said, as young as you are. I felt a great deal of pain when I was teased about my looks. I've long since accepted my deformity. A prognathic jaw runs in our family and I share it with an uncle. But I must admit the occasional insult or a drawing such as yours still hurts. Dot began to mumble, and then stopped, desperate. 
Sister Marianita waited and then handed her her own handkerchief. I'm sorry, Dot said again. She wiped her nose. The square of white material was cool and fresh. Can I go now? Of course not, Marianita said. Dot was confounded. The magical two words, an apology, had dropped from her lips, yet more was expected. What? I want you to understand something, the nun said. I told you how I feel, and I expect that you will never hurt me again. The nun waited and waited until their eyes met. Then Dot's mouth fell wide. Her eyes spilled over. She knew that the strange feelings that had come upon her were the same feelings that Marianita had felt. Dot had never felt another person's feelings, never in her life. I won't do anything to hurt you, she blubbered passionately. I'll kill myself first. I'm sure that will not be necessary, Sister Marianita said. Dot tried to rescue her pride then by turning away very quickly. Without permission, she ran out the schoolroom door, down the steps, and on into the street, where at last the magnetic force of the encounter weakened, and suddenly she could breathe. Even that was different, though. As she walked, she began to realize that her body was still fighting itself. Her lungs filled with air like two bags, but every time they did so, a place underneath them squeezed so painfully that the truth suddenly came clear. I love her now, she blurted out. She stopped on a crack, stepping on it, sickened. Oh God, I am in love. Toddy Crider was a hollow-chested, envious boy whose reputation had never recovered from the time he was sent home for eating tree bark. In the third grade, he had put two crayons up his nose, pretend tusks. The pink one got stuck, and Toddy had to visit the clinic. This year already, his stomach had been pumped in the emergency room. Dot despised him, but that only seemed to fuel his adoration of her. Coming into the schoolyard the second day, a bright, cool morning, Toddy ran up to Dot, his thin legs knocking. Yeah, he cried, Godzilla! Not bad, Adair. He wheeled off, the laces of his tennis shoes dragging. Dot looked after him and felt the buzz inside her head begin. How she wanted to stuff that name back into her mouth, or at least Toddy's mouth. I hope you trip and murder yourself! Dot screamed. But Toddy did not trip. For all of his clumsiness, he managed to stay upright, and as Dot stood rooted in the center of the walk, she saw him whiz from clump to clump of children, laughing and gesturing, filling the air with small and derisive sounds. Sister Marianita swept out the door, a wooden-handled brass bell in her hand, and when she shook it up and down, the children, who played together in twos and threes, swung toward her and narrowed or widened their eyes and turned eagerly to one another. Some began to laugh. It seemed to Dot that all of them did, in fact, and that the sound jerked from their lips was large, uncanny, totally, and horribly delicious. Godzilla, they called under their breath. Godzilla, Sister Godzilla.
Before them on the steps, the nun continued to smile into their faces. She did not hear them. Yet. But Dot knew she would. Over the bell, her eyes were brilliantly dark and alive. Her horrid, jagged teeth showed in a smile when she saw Dot, and Dot ran to her, thrusting a hand into her lunch bag and grabbing the cookies that her mother had made from whatever she could find around the house. Raisins, congealed malta meal, the whites of eggs. Here! Dot shoved a sweet, lumpy cookie into the nun's hand. It fell apart, distracting sister as the children pushed past. The students seemed to forget the name off and on all week. Some days they would move on to new triumphs or disasters. Other teachers occupied them or some small event occurred in the classroom. But then Toddy Crider would lope and careen among them at recess, would pump his arms and pretend to roar behind Sister Marianita's back as she stepped up to the plate. As she swung and connected with the ball and gathered herself to run, her veil lifting, the muscles in her shoulders like the curved hump of a raptor's wings, Toddy would move along behind her, rolling his legs the way Godzilla did in the movie. In her excitement, dashing base to base, her feet long and limber in black-laced shoes, Marianita did not notice. But Dot looked on, the taste of a penny caught in her throat. Snakes live in holes. Snakes are reptiles. These are science facts. Dot read aloud to the class from her Discovery Science book. Snakes are not wet. Some snakes lay eggs. Some have live young. Very good, sister said. Can you name other reptiles? Dot's tongue fused to the back of her throat. No, she croaked. Anyone else, sister said. Toddy Kreider raised his hand. Sister recognized him. How about Godzilla? Gasps. Small noises of excitement, mouths agape. Admiration for Toddy's nerve rippled through the rows of children like a wind across a field. Sister Marianita's great jaw opened, opened, and then snapped shut. Her shoulders shook. No one knew what to do at first. Then she laughed. It was a high-pitched, almost bird-like sound, a thin laugh like the highest notes on the piano. The children all hesitated, and then they laughed with her. Even Toddy Kreider, eyes darting from one child to the next to Dot. Toddy laughed. Dot's eyes crossed with urgency. When Sister Marianita turned to new work, Dot crooked her arm beside her like a piston and leaned across Toddy's desk. I'm going to give you one right in the bread basket, she said. With a precise boxer's jab, she knocked the wind out of Toddy, left him gasping, and turned to the front face clear as Sister began to speak. Furious sunlight, black cloth. Dot sat on the iron trapeze, the bar pushing a sore line into the backs of her legs. As she swung, she watched Sister Marianita. The wind was harsh, and the nun wore a pair of wonderful gloves, black. The fingers cut off of them so that her hands could better grip the bat. The ball arced toward her sinuously and dropped. Her back caught it with a thick, clean sound and off it soared. 
Marianita's habit swirled open behind her. The cold bit her cheeks red. She swung to third, glanced, panting over her shoulder, and then sped home. She touched down lightly and bounded off. Dot's arms felt heavy, weak, and she dropped from the trapeze and went to lean against the brick wall of the school building. Her heart thumped in her ears. She saw what she would do when she grew up declare her vocation, enter the convent. She and Sister Mary Anita would live in the nun's house together, side by side. They would eat, work, eat, cook. To relax, Sister Mary Anita would hit pop flies and Dot would catch them. <laughs> Someday, one day, Dot and Mary Anita would be walking, their hands in their sleeves, long habits flowing behind. Dear sister, Dot would say, remember that old nickname you had the year you taught the sixth grade? Why no, Sister Marianita would say, smiling at her. Why no? And Dot would know that she had protected her, kept her from harm. It got worse. Dot wrote some letters, tore them up. Her hands shook when Sister passed her in the aisle and her eyes closed automatically as she breathed in the air that closed behind the nun. Soap, a harsh soap, faint carbolic mothballs. That's what she smelled like, dizzying. <laughs> Dot's fists clenched. She pressed her knuckles to her eyes and very loudly excused herself. She went to the girl's bathroom and stood in a stall. Her life was terrible. The thing was, she didn't want to be a nun. I don't want to, she whispered desperate to the whitewashed tin walls that shuddered if a girl bumped them. There must be another way. <laughs> she would have to persuade Marianita to forsake her vows, <laughs> to come and live with Dot and her mother in the house just past the edge of town. How would she start? How could she persuade her teacher? Someone was standing outside the stall. Dot opened the door a bit and stared into the great craggy face. Are you feeling all right? Do you need to go home? Sister Marianita was concerned. Fire shot through Dot's limbs. The girl's bathroom, a place of secrets, of frosted glass, its light mute and yet brilliant, paralyzed her. But she gathered herself. Here was her chance as if God had given it to her. Please, Dot said, let's run away together. <laughs> Sister paused. Are you having troubles at home? No, Dot said. Sister's milk-white hand came through the doorway and covered Dot's forehead. Dot's anxious thoughts throbbed against the lean palm. Staring into the eyes of the nun, Dot gripped the small metal knob on the inside of the door and pushed. Then she felt herself falling forward, slowly turning like a leaf in the wind, upheld and buoyant in the peaceful roar. It was as though she would never reach Sister's arms, but when she did, she came back with a jolt. You are ill, Sister said. Come to the office and we'll call your mother. As Dot had known it would, perhaps from that moment in the girl's bathroom, the day came the day of her reckoning. Outside in the morning schoolyard after mass and before first bell, everyone crowded around Toddy Crider, 
In his arms, he held a wind-up tin Godzilla, a big toy, almost knee-high, a green and gold replica painted with a fierce eye for detail. The scales were perfect overlapping crescents, and the eyes were large and manic, pitch black, oddly human. Toddy had pinned a sort of cloak on the thing, a black scarf. Dot's arms thrust through the packed shoulders, but the bell rang and Toddy stowed the toy under his coat. His eyes picked Dot from the rest. I had to send for this, he cried. The punch hadn't turned him against Dot, only hardened his resolve to please her. He vanished through the heavy, wine-red doors of the school. Dot stared at the ground. The world went stark, the colors harsh in her eyes. The small brown pebbles of the playground leaped off the tarred and sealed earth. She took a step. The stones seemed to crack and whistle under her feet. Last bell, Sister Marianita called. You'll be late. Morning prayer, the pledge, Toddy drew out the suspense of his audience, enjoying the glances and whispers. The toy was in his desk. Every so often he lifted the lid and then looked around to see how many children were watching him duck inside to make adjustments. By the time sisters started the daily reading lesson, the tension in the room was so acute that even Toddy could not bear it any longer. The room was large, high-ceilinged, floored with slats of polished wood. Round lights hung on thick chains, and the great rectangular windows let through enormous sheaves of radiance. This large class had been in the room for more than two years. Dot had spent most of every day in the room. She knew its creaks, the muted clunk of desks rocking out of floor bolts, the mad thumping in the radiators like the sound of a thousand imprisoned elves, and she heard and immediately registered the click and grind of Toddy's wind-up key. Sister Marianita did not. The teacher turned to the chalkboard, her book open on the desk, and began to write instructions for the children to copy. She was absorbed, calling out the instructions as she wrote. Her arms swept up and down, it seemed to Dot, in a frighteningly innocent joy. She was inventing a lesson, some way of doing things, not a word of which was being taken in. All eyes were on the third row where Toddy Kreider sat. All eyes were on his hands as he wound the toy up to its limit and bent over and set it on the floor. Then the eyes were on the toy itself as Toddy lifted his hand away and the thing moved forward on its own. The scarf it wore did not hamper the beast's progress, the regular thrash of its legs. The tiny claw hands beat forward like pistons, and the thick metal tail whipped from side to side as the toy moved down the center of the aisle toward the front of the room, toward Sister Marianita, who stood, back turned, immersed in her work at the board. Dot had gotten herself placed in the first row to be closer to her teacher. And so she saw the creature up close just before it headed into the polished open space of floor at the front of the room. Its powerful jaws thrust from the black scarf. Its great teeth were frozen, exhibited in a terrible smile. 
Its painted eyes had an eager and purposeful look. Its movement faltered as it neared Marianita. The children caught their breath, but the thing inched forward, made slow and fascinating progress directly toward the hem of her garment. She did not seem to notice. She continued to talk, to write, circling numbers and emphasizing certain words with careful underlines. And as she did so, as the moment neared, Dot's brain finally rang. She jumped up as though it were the last bell of the day. She vaulted from her desk. Two steps took her across that gleaming space of wood at the front of the room. But just as she bent down to scoop the toy to her chest, a neat black boot slashed inches from her nose. Sister Marianita had whirled, the chalk fixed in her hand. Dainty, casually, she had lifted her habit and kicked the toy dinosaur into the air. The thing ascended, pedaling its clawed feet, the scarf blown back like a sprung umbrella. The trajectory was straight and true. The toy knocked headfirst into the ceiling and came back down in pieces. The children ducked underneath the rain of scattered tin. Only Dot and Marionita stood poised, unmoving, focused on the moment between them. Dot could look nowhere but at her teacher. But when she lifted her eyes this time, Sister Marianita was not looking at her. She had turned her face away, the rough cheek blotched as if it had borne a slap, the gaze hooded and set low. Sister walked to the window, her back again to Dot, to the class, and as the laughter started, uncomfortable and groaning at first, then shriller, fuller, becoming its own animal. Dot felt an unrecoverable tenderness boil up in her. Inwardly, she begged the nun to turn and stop the noise. But Sister did not. She let it wash across them both without mercy. Dot lost sight of her unspeakable profile as Marianita looked out into the yard. Bathed in brilliant light, the nun's face went as blank as a sheet of paper, as the sky, as featureless as all things that enter heaven. That was Louise Erdrich's Sister Godzilla, read by Cynthia Nixon. Now to a bit more of my conversation with Allison Stewart. We talked about the stories in our program, yes, but a lot more, too. Cynthia Nixon is a Selected Shorts regular, and she's always wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about her reading at the live show and how it helped bring the story to life? I loved watching Cynthia read. Well, first you saw her skills as an actor, because she's so expressive in her voice. Not to be too shallow, but she has a certain star quality. She's a TV and movie star for a reason. And... As she performed and read the story, she did perform it. She didn't just read it. And I think that's what I was really taken with. Right. I love how you're saying when you were watching her that the, you know, watching is just as important a part as 
listening. Because, of course, our listeners are going to listen and not watch. But you're adding a dimension here to sort of let us know what it was like that night. And I think that's so wonderful. Tell me about your conversations with Louise Erdrich and what you learned about her choice of characters. I feel so lucky that I've gotten to interview Louise Erdrich several times. She loves her characters. She loves her flawed characters. And I think you can feel that in her writing. That's, that's maybe her special sauce. <laughs> that's her sprinkling. She has a sense of humor that is dry or deadpan and subtle. Do you think it's a prerequisite for writers to love their characters? From the authors I've interviewed, most of them do, even the bad ones, even the bad characters, because they have to get inside that person's point of view, because yeah. they have to understand the motivation of the person. They don't have to agree with it, but they have to understand the motivation for it. So if they don't like the character, they at least understand their character. Sister Godzilla is a story about puberty, love, and confusion. <laughs> I'm curious, Allison, in your view, what separates this from other Kid Falls for Teacher stories? I remember how Lily Tomlin had this wonderful monologue in her show about her child self being madly in love with her teacher, Miss <laughs> Sweeney. Do you remember that? I, do. I don't know if you do. Yes. It was so great. It was so wonderful. There's this moment, actually, when... Uh, she's embarrassed because she stands up before the class to read aloud and she says something like, Jack was scared. He could not reach the Island." And, you know, <laughs> she pronounces island. And then at the end, I guess she's hit by a car and Miss Sweeney comes and is standing over her. And in the background, all the other kids are talking and one goes, there's that kid Island." You know, and it just like haunts you. <laughs> and she doesn't want to be seen, you know, sort of in anything but a flattering light, even as she's lying in the street in front of her teacher. What is it that Louise Erdrich brings to this story that another writer might not? She brings that sense of humor around a time that we all remember. She also was very good at bringing us back to that time. And she's very good at opening the door to those memories, helping us open our door to those memories. She tells a story that everyone can relate to using unique characters. Wonderfully said. And when you said about how it brings you back to that time, you may feel kind of uneasy about being brought back to that time. She keeps the uneasiness of humor alive in a story like this. And I'm wondering, how does she accomplish that, keeping both sides alive, the funny side and the uneasy side? I think uneasiness, just as a, a little extra here, is more generally something that we find in the best fiction. Do you, do you share that view? I sometimes do have a hard time with that in books. I was the kind of kid when I watched I Love Lucy and Lucy did something stupid. Sometimes I'd have to put my hand over my eye like, oh no. In a sitcom, you know it's going to work out at the end, but why are they putting us through that? Yeah. Whereas in fiction, you don't know. You don't know. It's going to work out. You don't know. You and don't that uneasiness is, is stronger and perhaps more durable. Without being too woo-woo, it's a, it's a good life lesson. Sometimes you have to sit in the discomfort in life. Absolutely. And I would love to sit in the discomfort with a writer like Louise Erdrich. <laughs> There was a, a kind of heated conversation on Twitter recently. Can you believe it? A heated conversation <laughs> on Twitter? Have you heard of such a thing? Um, it was about the role of fiction when the world is in such a terrible crisis. And, mm. you know, there was a, a sort of argument for uh, the necessity of nonfiction over fiction by one person who seemed to think that fiction didn't matter as much now. And then, as you might also guess, lots of people vehemently disagreed. So I'm curious what you think the role of fiction is during troubling times. I'm mulling it over because I could make both arguments. <laughs> which yeah, is, and yeah. also they're, they're nuanced, 
which is uh, something you don't get on the Twitter. If I had to make the argument for fiction in difficult times is mm-hmm. I think you have to take a break from the onslaught of the news and things that are difficult. And by taking those breaks, you can go back to that very important information and those very important events happening in our world with fresh eyes, with having taken a moment to rest. And that's that. Stories of love and haunting chosen with the help of all of its Alison Stewart. Maybe you found a new favorite writer or just a new favorite story from a writer you admire. Either way, a win in my book. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Jennifer Nelson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.